Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Ralph Nader is America's most famous consumer advocate, a tireless critic of corporate corruption, and a controversial presidential candidate. Nader achieved early fame in 1965 with his expose of auto safety problems with American cars, and he later became a key leader in the anti-nuclear power movement. He's run for president several times, most famously in 2000, when critics accuse him of drawing votes from Vice President Al Gore, resulting in the election of George W. Bush. Nader's influence on Vermont can be found in the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, or VPIRG, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this month. VPIRG grew out of a meeting in October 1971 with student activists at the University of Vermont. Don Ross, Nader's top lieutenant, came to UVM and urged the students to form a campus chapter of the National Citizen Action Movement that Nader was spearheading. VPIRG was launched the following year. There are now PIRGs in over 25 states. We spend the hour talking with Ralph Nader about the citizen action movement that he inspired and about his thoughts on politics today. We also speak with Paul Burns, who's been executive director of VPIRG for 22 years. I began my conversation with Ralph Nader by asking him what led him to launch a national movement of public interest research groups. Well, uh, coming out of the 1960s, uh, we saw a lot of student activities, but they weren't institutionalized. Uh, there were marches, uh, there were rallies, uh, there was litigation, civil rights litigation, women's rights, environment. Uh, and uh, we looked at the future and said, you know, if, uh, if we don't have institutions, these efforts are not going to be perpetuated. They're not going to last. They're going to rise and fall. And so I thought up this idea of the universities and colleges being a, a generator uh, in the 1960s for a lot of the activism. Well, why not go to these universities and show the students that for a very small amount on their student uh, activities fee, 3 to $5 per student following a student referendum, they could create a separate independent nonprofit research group uh, called the Public Interest Research Group. And the first one was in Oregon, then Minnesota, and then they started spreading all over the country. Uh, this is in 1971, 1972. Uh, and the idea was that the money would go to these nonprofit groups, and the student board would uh, hire full time staff. Uh, I used to say 18 to 22-year-olds would hire 25 to 35-year-olds, lawyers, organizers, uh, writers, lobbyists, uh, recruiters, uh, educators. And so it spread to at least 20 states. We had good ones in California and Michigan, especially Massachusetts, uh, and um Maryland, New York, of course, Florida, uh, and uh, we didn't neglect Vermont. So I went up to Vermont, and at the University of Vermont, the, the big gymnasium, every seat was full. People were standing in the aisles, and someone introduced me uh, to the uh, audience, and uh, just before that, the person said, you know, you are talking to 1% of the entire population of Vermont <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. 1%. And uh, it was a huge success. And as uh, these speeches were immediately followed by meetings in adjacent rooms where the really active and committed students uh, would come and we'd lay the basis for uh in this case, VPIRG, uh, or NYPIRG for New York, or MassPIRG, or Connecticut PIRG, or California PIRG, Colorado PIRG, Oregon PIRG. Uh, so that's how it started. I'm sorry to say today, if we tried to do the same thing, uh, there would be an echo in the gymnasium. Uh, there's been a very serious diminishment of uh, civic engagement by students other than the politically correct 
uh, efforts, and uh, they have forgotten uh, that giant corporations are the most important, dominant, powerful force controlling our country and our government and our economy and our workers and our consumers. And that is going to be the top priority, and I'm glad to see that VPIRG has not forgotten that, that it still deals with polluters and deals with efforts that try to reduce the vote. It deals with consumer protection. It deals with mobilizing, educating people in Vermont. Uh, and it's rooted in Vermont. It's funded by Vermonters. It has a total $2 million budget in two groups, the lobbying group, the advocacy group, and the educational group. And most of the money comes from individual Vermonters, which is the way it should be, including monthly subscribers. So I'm very delighted uh, to uh, to participate in, in whatever small way in the 50th anniversary. And what Vermont Perg has done is reflect what my sister Claire Nader said many years ago when she said, quote, the real measure of Ralph's success will be how many oak trees are planted, end quote, meaning oak trees in the forest of democracy. We can't have enough of them. They're far too few, given the corporate supremacists and the corporate control, uh, as never before in our country's history. So we can look back with pleasure as to what uh, has been achieved, but we've got to look forward and be very displeased about how much more there has to uh, occur to subordinate corporate power to citizen power constitutionally, statutorily, and in the minds of the people everywhere. So the we, the people, is really given tooth uh, and, and energy uh, and a preamble to the Constitution. We should always remember it, it was not we, the corporations, and it was not we, the Congress. It was we, the people. So what is your advice to student activists today? What do you think they should be doing and focusing on? They should be focusing on subordinating corporate power in all ways, federal statutes, state statutes, regulations, even constitutional revisions, to the supremacy of citizen power, as the Constitution uh, initiates with we the people. Unfortunately, even though the word corporation and company are not even mentioned in the Constitution, why are they controlling us? Because we're not energizing and implementing the Constitution through laws, litigation, and above all, the spirit and understanding of the people. So I would urge students, one, to form more groups like VPIRG, because there are a lot of states, especially in the south and mountain areas, that don't have student PIRGs with full-time staff, student board of directors, educational opportunities for the students, internships, and persuading faculty to take on student PIRG projects uh, as credit to give students who work on PIRG projects uh, credit, course credit. This was done in Albany for some uh, student projects of NYPIRG uh, years ago. There's no reason why that can't be done uh, all over the uh, country. Uh, the, the other thing I think students should do is organize electorally into a, a voting block. They failed to do that miserably on student loan rackets that are now incarcerating the, the meager budgets of 42 million adults still paying off high interest rate student loans from their days uh, at, at college before they graduated. And that to me was inexcusable because that was a real personal interest of millions of students and they became graduates and they, they couldn't even mobilize on Congress on that. The law schools couldn't even mobilize. The students in the law schools are deep into debt. So my uh, approach to young people, David, is if you have low expectations of them civically, they will oblige you. 
if you have high expectations of them civically, they will surprise you. That's what we've got to do. We can't pander to them, make excuses for them. They're going to inherit the country. There are tens of millions of them. They have access to technical expertise in terms of faculty, uh, student laboratories, physics, biology, uh, botany, chemistry. Uh, They have all the tools needed, including their human energy and their evolving idealism and their knowledge of all the solutions that we have on the shelf, like solar energy, why it took so long, uh, so many ways to fix the problems, challenge the military-industrial complex, stop the empire, uh, roll it back, come back to America. We're, We're destroying all kinds of countries that don't threaten us, creating enemies, creating more demand for uh, weapon systems, more money for the Lockheeds and the Raytheons and the General Dynamics, devouring public budgets that are needed to meet the necessities of the American people here at home. And as we know from history, all empires eventually devour themselves. So the students are not focusing on over half of the federal budget that goes to the military, over half of the operating federal federal budget. And we're stoking wars and armed conflict everywhere. And um, the students have got to call out. Call out. You know, the moment Nixon repealed the draft, the anti-war movements on campus diminished. And, and he knew what he was doing. And um, uh, Ben and Jerry's has been very... Uh, adamant about all this. In fact, uh, Ben Cohn hired a bus for months, went all over the country to try to educate people, especially young students, about the damage the military-industrial complex is doing to our own uh, dire situations in this country, our domestic priorities, our entrenched poverty, our crumbling infrastructure. So Vermont has done a lot proportionally. I would say if all the states did what Vermont has done proportionally, we'd have a very different country, one What's, that we could be really proud of. What is your assessment of Senator Bernie Sanders, who's probably the main champion of the issues that you know have been near and dear to your heart with corporate accountability, dark money in politics, climate crisis? Um, what's your take on him? Well, I've known Bernie before he was mayor of Burlington, and um, he's clearly the most progressive member of Congress consistently over time. And he his run for the two presidential campaigns have revolutionized small donation fundraising. I mean, he raised over $200 million in uh, 2016. It was unheard of, and so he didn't have to even be tempted by the corporate PACs or the big fat cap. Donors, and that is a huge contribution that he's made. But Bernie has a problem. It's not returning calls. It's being a lone wolf. And he's chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, and he has not returned my call for 22 years. I have talked to him about four times, one time because I met him in the uh, Senate barbershop, totally fortuitous, and, and other times when I called him on his uh, cell phone number and he answered, and he was very congenial and said, call my staff, we'll get it done, and it never got done. Uh, so it's, it's it's quite disappointing. Here you have a great senator on all the issues. He's got a conservative state reelecting him with ever larger margins. He's very articulate. He ran exhaustive campaigns, 2016, 2020. But he he doesn't want to have anything with the name Nader ever related to him. He once said, I don't want to have, uh, I don't want to be another Nader, meaning the totally misinterpreted uh, result of the 2000 uh, campaign between um, uh, Gore and Bush. Uh, he's bought into the Green Party Uh, taking votes away, all the academic studies, uh, all the empirical data, 
show, first of all, that Gore won the election, was taken to Florida because of the Electoral College. He won the popular vote by half a million. Went into Florida, as we all know. And uh, the crooked uh, Jeb Bush, Secretary of State regime, did everything possible uh, to change the outcome of the election, uh, dangling chads on the ballots in South Florida counties, uh, thousands of mislabeled ex-felons because they had similar names taking away the vote. Uh, It didn't help that 300,000 Democrats voted for George W. Bush in Florida. It didn't help that the Supreme Court disgraced its majority status with Scalia, stopping the Florida Supreme Court order to recount the vote. Instead of saying this is all nonsense, uh, Bernie backed away from it as if it would he would be stigmatized if there is any way he would come to our corporate power accountability conferences in Washington, to which he was invited, and he never came. So that's where we are, the great blessings and limitations of Senator Bernie Sanders. President Biden recently made a speech calling on Americans to defend democracy against the rising tide of fascism. Do you agree with that sense that we are, that democracy is in great peril? And, and if oh, so, from so. whom? Well, when you have 20, 73 million voters in 2020 voting for a neo-fascist crook, liar, thief, self-enricher, ignorant, Wall Street over Washington, uh, President Donald J. Trump, you've got to be concerned. He doesn't believe that there's any election he can lose because any election he loses was stolen. And he has all kinds of Republican governors and state legislators who are saying the same thing. You have over 140 Republicans in the House of Representatives who say the election was stolen. So this is not just one uh, fascist wannabe uh, in the White House for four years and, and wanting to come back in 2024. This is now a movement. And it's a movement that has all the fascist attributes, censorship, constant prevarication, creating fantasies for uh, believable uh, people, uh, reflecting biases, prejudices, deflecting uh, workers' uh, dismay with their livelihoods and what corporate exploitation are causing them, onto Washington, D.C., or the Democrats. Um, You have uh, no-holds-barred support for the military, the military budget, police, uh, violation of civil liberties, suppressing the vote, purging the vote, distorting the vote count, criminalizing by state statutes uh, the volunteer activities of precinct workers, Uh, It's a whole nine yards coming up over the horizon, David. So it's good that Biden made the speech. It wasn't very good ringing rhetoric. He doesn't have very good speech writers. And his delivery is not, uh, you know, John Kennedy-like. But at least he stated it. It would have been better if he added some of his achievements in the recent uh, year and a half to remind people of what Many people don't know that he did get some very good public service infrastructure, social safety net, including $300 a month on the average to over 60 million children, which was not extended because the opposition of the Republican Party, uh, who said, no, you're not going to extend it beyond January 2022. So he, he, I guess he didn't want to inject any excessive partisanship other than for the first time mentioning Trump in a critical way. Uh, But it was better than him not speaking out. Uh, Unfortunately, most of the networks didn't cover it. MSNBC did. And um, it didn't reach that many people. But uh, people can write about it and, and play it off the radio. Uh, You have seen American politics up close from the inside and outside for longer than nearly everybody. 
Why do you think now that Trump and authoritarianism is gaining the foothold that it is? Because the Democrats have created a huge vacuum for over 45 years. Franklin Donald Roosevelt dominated politics because he talked economic agenda. He didn't just inspire. Uh, he just didn't talk about the four freedoms. He talked about minimum wage, unemployment compensation, Social Security, health insurance, which he wanted to get through but couldn't because of the Republican opposition. The Republicans opposed all this and more. They opposed labor union rights. They got through the notorious Taft-Hartley Act 1947, which the Democrats have never made an issue to repeal, the worst anti-worker law in the Western world by far. Um, The Democrats have made very serious mistakes. The minute they started taking corporate money in 1979, we could see it all go downhill. Fewer congressional hearings ripping into corporate abuses, fewer regulations being issued or enforced when the Democrats were in power, uh, far more catering to corporate PACs. You could see it everywhere, allowing uh, huge interest rates by private companies gouging uh, poor workers, payday loan rackets, student loans. And then they made other serious mistakes. They decided to carve up the country into red state, blue state. So they they didn't campaign in half the country. If you don't campaign, let's say, presidentially in Alabama and Texas and the mountain states, uh, it weakens the Democratic Party all the way down to the local uh, elected representatives, all the way down to dog catcher. And so when you start uh, to defeat the opposing party in a two-party duopoly, that's uh, antagonistic to third-party engagement, when you, when you, in effect, discount almost half the country, you're, you're up against the wall. For example, the Democrats, time and time again, would spend more money in a Senate race in Pennsylvania than they would in five mountain states, which have 10 senators. Five, they abandoned the mountain states, which used to have Democratic senators like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, they abandoned them. And so the the Republicans start out with 10 uh, or at least eight unchallenged Senate seats. So going for corporate money, redlining certain areas of the country from uh, Democratic Party engagement, uh, turning over the elections to professional media and consulting groups who have corporate clients and are in a conflict of interest and who are not interested in a ground game to get out the voters because they want the Democrats who are their clients to put the money on TV and radio so they can get to 15% commission. And that has cost uh, the Democrats in many state and state uh, legislative races and many congressional races, decisive losses to the Republicans who took control of these legislatures in Congress. When you don't have a ground game, you don't get out the vote, you end up with these media uh, buyers who have these insipid, uh, empty, vacuous ads they repeat over and over again, generating all those commissions, and they, they actually boomerang and they irritate people. Not only they don't motivate them to vote, So my answer to your question is that when you have a weak opposition to a Wall Street and now neo-fascist Republican Party, the country's in trouble. The democracy's in trouble. The people are in trouble. And that's why there has to be a more grassroots takeover of the Democratic Party. New blood has to go in. These, These Democratic Party apparatchiks they lose election after election. They don't lose their job. There's no replacements uh, for these uh, apparatchiks. So, and then we we cannot discount the state and local efforts that feed a more progressive national effort. That's why Vermont is such an interesting laboratory 
in, in that respect. On a note of optimism, I've said again and again that if 1% of the people, that's 2.5 million adults in 435 congressional districts, formed Congress watchdog groups with, let's say, 10-point agendas of long overdue changes like universal health care, living wage, cracking down on corporate crime, a rejuvenated and fairer tax system, cutting back on empire and the military industrial budget, etc. Two and a half million people, David, 1% providing uh, an office with two or three full-time people and each of the two and a half million contributing, say, 100 volunteer hours a year can turn Congress around on almost every issue and send the corporate lobbyists running for cover. That's what it takes. Why? Because they would be representing majority public opinion, they would know what they're talking about, and they would have a full-time presence to summon the members from Washington to the people's town meetings and to read them the agenda and demand response And the members know that these people are not going to go away. It's not going to be a one-day town meeting because they have uh, offices in each district. And they have two and a half million people who are serious, who are reflecting popular opinion. That kind of combination, which is very doable, I once told a couple of progressive billionaires, you could start it with $100 million for the first year and then get it supported by the two and a half million people contributing X dollars a year each, so it becomes self-sufficient. They weren't interested. There's very little understanding in how democracies get defended and built and strengthened to keep up with the perils that are afflicting the planet, very much from concentration of economic and political power in few hands, where the few decide for the many throughout the world. So that, that that's where the optimism comes. It doesn't take that much. 1% reflecting public opinion. And there's a lot of left-right public opinion, as I pointed out in my book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance uh, to Dismantle the Corporate State. There are 70% or more opinion polls, David, supporting universal health insurance, supporting $15 uh, an hour pay, supporting cracking down on Wall Street, breaking up the big banks in one poll, came in at 90% around 2009. So this idea of polarization is a, is a divide and rule technique that's fed by the divide and rule politicians and their backers. On 25 major t- transformational issues, including campaign finance reform, including media reform. There is very solid left-right majorities in this country. Once you get over 70%, Congress is flattened. They're not going to be able to deal with the left-right advocacy issue, and they will pass the requisite legislation with the requisite enforcement budgets, and they will shape up. So it all comes down to civic motivation and modest civic energy. So at this moment with democracy on a precipice, as what do you think is the single most imp- effective thing that we can do, that uh, people who are concerned can do to ensure that we do not slide into authoritarianism? It all starts with two institutions to whom we have delegated our constitutional power of we the people, That's state legislatures and the Congress. They have enormous unused power to reflect necessities and aspirations of the American people. So you start by summoning to citizen-created town meetings the state lawmakers and your two senators and representatives, and you present them with the agenda. So you don't just go with a single issue that they can flick off. You go with a fundamental interaction between the sovereign people, and their delegated representatives. So the focus is on legislators, from what you're saying. 
That's right. They're the ones who have your power, and they're abusing it, turning it against you, selling it or renting it to the highest corporate bidders, and it's time to turn that around. And everybody understands that. You don't have to persuade red state, blue state people. Everybody understands that. 80% of Republicans polled were against the Supreme Court decision allowing unlimited independent contributions by corporations to oppose or support political candidates. 80% of the Republicans. Finally, um, Ralph Nader, we began this conversation talking about uh, an an achievement of yours from early in your career, the creation of the PERG movement here in Vermont. It's VPERG. As you reflect on the many things you've been involved in, what are you proudest of? Institution building. Of course, auto safety, which which is the first approach, was, you know, very gratifying, saving millions of lives, preventing injuries, family anguish, billions and billions of dollars. Uh, that remains very, very gratifying. Um, it was accomplished in the days when the Congress worked for us more than it does now. And the bill passed unanimously. Every Republican in the House Senate passed, voted for the National Highway and Safety, National Highway and Vehicle Safety Laws. Um, But the most enduring gratification comes from building the PERGs, the Public Interest Research Groups, and dozens of other groups on other subjects all over the country organizing the alumni of my alma mater's class at Harvard Law School in Princeton to start their own full-time civic groups. The Appleseed Foundation, started by my class at Harvard Law School, has started 20 centers for law and justice all over the country. That's just one class. Can you imagine other law school classes? So we have to build more institutions. People have to aspire, not just for justice on this issue or that, but to build the institutions. As Mr. Monet, who was one of the founders of the European Common Market, once said, quote, without people, nothing is possible. Without institutions, nothing is lasting, end quote. And I go back to Marcus Cicero, the ancient Roman lawyer's great definition of freedom, the best I've ever heard when he wrote, quote, freedom is participation in power, end quote. Okay, well, Ralph Nader, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you, David. We turn now to Paul Burns, the executive director of the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, the group launched by Ralph Nader, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this month. Burns has led the group since 2000. Burns attended law school at Syracuse University and began by asking him who Ralph Nader was to him as he was growing up and when he went to law school. Probably soon after the time I realized I wasn't going to become a, a, a goalie in the NHL for the New York Rangers, I, I remember looking at the TV and, and Nader was on, and this must have been you know, very early 70s or so, um, and he he seemed to be taking on people who have more power than he did um, with such a, uh, just a, a pure sense of, of justice. And I, I don't know, for me, it struck a chord. I said, I want to do what he's doing. Um, and I'll, I'll really, I'll never forget it. And that it was Ralph Nader who was standing up for this idea that, um, uh, that you can take on city hall, I guess. Um, and that, um, and that even he as a, really as a single person has do, done so much but it was with the belief that um, that we all had these tools and skills and power if we uh, work thoughtfully together. And so uh, it it wasn't it wasn't like I never wavered from that course. But I but I recognized that Nader was a true champion of this this idea that um, that we had the power to make change and perhaps more power than we realized. Uh, so in going to law school, I, I had seen Nader. Um, in college myself, so I'm speak on campus, and, and that's what uh, got me involved at that time. I was in student government, and I uh, tried, uh, worked to create a chapter of NYPERG, New York PERG, on the campus where I was going to, to school. Uh, and then right out of undergrad, I 
I started working for Nyperg in Syracuse and, and knocking on doors. That was my first full-time job back in 1986. Um, and so did that for a few years before going back to school, went to law school at Syracuse and um, recognized that I too had maybe some skills and, and, and some, um, something to offer uh, in these fights where you're taking on uh, powerful special interests who are uh, not looking out for the public interest, you know, and, and that's where so many of these battles come down. That's, that's the kind of fight, that's the kind of work that I was interested in doing was um, uh, leveling the scales a little bit from those who didn't have power um, and were found themselves in really difficult, challenging battles with those who had so much wealth and power. And I, I wanted to be part of that. When you come out of law school, you have a lot of options. You have friends who are going into corporate law and making a lot of money. Why didn't you do that? Yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, and and years later, when you when you talk to those folks, they talk mostly about how many hours they work and how much money they make. And I said, gosh, none of you are talking about what you're doing. I wanted to talk about what I was doing. I was excited to actually do interesting, meaningful things. And so, yeah, with my law degree, I... I uh, I didn't go far in some respects. I went to Boston. I started working for MassPerg, the Massachusetts Perg, and, and uh, as a staff attorney and, and uh, quickly the development of their, uh, the head of their uh, toxics program. So working on environmental issues, also working on some of the democracy issues. And I, I just, that's, that's what I wanted to do. I, in law school, I was part of the public interest law program there, a clinical program. I did one uh, case and uh, we were taking on a, a propane gas company that was uh, improperly trying to locate into a neighborhood just outside of Syracuse. It was great. My dad got to see me come uh, and argue in front of the judge. I won the case. I figure I'm batting a thousand. That's it for my litigation uh, <laughs> career. Um, but I could, I could do this work. I, what I really wanted to do was help create the laws and, and enforce them rather than rather than going to court. And um, so that's that's really what took me to Massburg. And, and I did that for eight years um, before coming up here to Vermont, which was to me really the perfect place to be. You, you get to continue to work on these really important, vexing, challenging problems, creating innovative solutions and living in just a spectacular environment and place to, uh, to, um, to raise a family and, uh, and just to kind of enjoy life while you're also doing really important work. Couldn't be better. So you took over as executive director of VPIRG in 2000. So I came in December of 2000 and I spent six months as the advocacy director. And then my predecessor, Dave Rappaport, moved on to the renewable energy world. And I, I became executive director in June of 2001. So I've, I've been here almost exactly 22 years, but I've been the director for just just over 21. Tell us a little bit about who some of the founding fathers and mothers of VPIRG were from those its start in the early 70s. Well, I, I would have to mention Scott Skinner was the first executive director of, of VPIRG um, and uh, passed away uh, several years ago. But Scott was uh, a mentor, just a just a wonderful human being um, and, uh, and a friend uh, to me and, and to this organization. Uh, went on uh, uh, to have, you know, worked his own law firm and um, was closely associated with ACLU of Vermont as well. Um, ran for office uh, himself in the 70s too. Um, uh, but he, um, um, he was a real champion, and, and, and he worked on, uh, in the early days, of course, Viper worked on also a range of issues, but for Scott, uh, the last conversations I had with him were still about what could we do about how the makers of um, uh, hearing aids were ripping people off. Uh, just weeks before he passed away, he's still interested in basic fundamental consumer protection issues uh, like that, and that there was a role for that, that PERG could, could be involved in. Sometimes it was just exposing the fact that businesses were, were ripping people off, um, uh, or it might have been the development of a state policy that could help to address this kind of problem and, and make hearing aids more available. And, and this too is, is in now in federal policy, it's still being discussed and, and, and um, uh, improvements are being made there. Um, but the idea that uh, we could do something, a, a, a relatively small band of 
researchers, organizers, and advocates could help to change state policy that would benefit hundreds or maybe thousands of people that we would never meet uh, directly um, was was something that was really satisfying to Scott. And I think it was a kind of a fundamental principle about you know who we are and the kind of work that we do. One of the ways that Vermonters know VPIRG uh, is undoubtedly through the young canvassers who show up at their door every summer. Um, talk about the VPIRG canvas. What, when did that begin and what does it mean to the organization? Well, the canvas started for VPIRG in the mid-1980s. Um, Joan Mulhern, who was probably the most fierce advocate that VPIRG ever had, and, and Joan herself passed away some years ago, but she was just so important to this organization. Uh, went on to work for Earth Justice and, and has um, uh, really made the world a better place. Uh, we miss her terribly. But one of the contributions that Joan made to VPIRG was helping to create and launch VPIRG's first door-to-door -door canvas. I think it was 1985. Um, and that was around the time that other PIRGs in the country were also creating door-to-door uh, -door canvases. And the idea was that perhaps we could convince young people to go into neighborhoods that they've never been to, talk to people that they've never met before and ask them for money to support a cause that they may know nothing about. This is not easy work, uh, I'll tell you. And yet over time, we have uh, honored those beginnings and continue to refine our approach. And today, VPIRG's door-to-door canvas run out of our Burlington office is really probably the most effective door-to-door -door canvassing operation in the country. Um, th there are times in the pre-COVID years where, where our canvas would grow to 90 or 100 people going out every night in the summer. It's just an astonishing number. Um, and we've knocked on over 100,000 doors in a summer. We've knocked on doors in, in, in every community in the state in certain uh, of those summers. That's how large it was. That's what kind of reach we had. And I think it's a, just a, a great commitment to this idea that still the best change can come in having direct human interactions, talking to folks on their front porch um, about what we're working on. And we don't get the support from, from everybody, of course. We work on, you know, tough issues and, and, and people are going to disagree on these things, but that we can have civil conversations with folks. And we try to leave every conversation with, you know, if we disagree, well, have, have a great night, you know. Um, I love this idea of, of democracy in action um, in that way. And that's what the canvas represents. And I hear from people every year, every summer, oh, your, your person was at my door. I can't believe they biked that far up my driveway, or I can't believe they were out in the rain that way, or just how, how smart or how thoughtful or how energetic they were. And, and uh, almost invariably, people are surprised. You know, I, I thought young people didn't care. Um, and I guess if there's anything that... Um, proves that, that that is a myth is uh, is uh, a look at the VPIRG canvas any summer. I mean, it's just, it's amazing energy that comes from those folks. Well, and I can't help but think that the impact that it has on the lives of these young people, often college kids or even, I suppose, high school kids who are doing this for their summer, um, the impact that it has on them. I know uh, for my wife, being a MassPIRG canvasser, you know, was one of her f early forays into citizen engagement, which has become, you know, what she's done for the rest of her life. Um, well, talk about some of the issues that have been central to VPIRG's work over the last half century and, and what you think some of the biggest wins have been. You know, it's, it's amazing as I look through the timeline of accomplishments for the organization, there are some kind of common threads or things that, that pop up frequently over the years. One of them, of course, is the two of them, I guess, go back to the very same year that we were founded. Uh, one was Vermont Yankee uh, went online in 1972, the nuclear, Vermont's only nuclear power plant. Um, and the bottle bill was passed uh, also 1972. And we've worked on these issues, um, it seems like almost every year since then. Of course, Vermont Yankee, we worked for years, um, uh, you know, trying to work toward decommissioning, try to prevent uh, Vermont from being a, a host or repository for high level nuclear waste. Many, many battles from the 70s right on through to uh, 2006 when we passed legislation that gave the legislature the power to say yes or no to the continued operation of the plant once its license uh, expired. And at the time, I think people thought, well, it's a foregone conclusion. Of course, the legislature would approve it if, if they wanted to continue to operate. 
Um, but we knew that at least it gave some hope, some chance that the public might be able to influence that legislative process, that it wasn't going to be a, a far off bureaucracy that had full control over that decision making. And lo and behold, four years later, when when that, that permit was coming up for review in 2010, uh, it was around the same time that there were uh, tritium leaks and all sorts of management problems, one after another at the plant. And we, of course, uh, fought like heck and organized around the state and, and convinced the state Senate not to approve for the continued operation beyond its, its license. Um, and while that then went to court and there were battles over that, ultimately the, uh, the owners of that plant decided that it was time to retire it in Vermont and it retired in 2014. But I honor the work of so many folks who came before it who said that really nuclear power was not the answer. Um, I still believe that's true today um, and that we have better ways of going. And at that same time, we were pressing for the alternatives, cleaner alternatives, energy efficiency, we were very much involved in the creation of Efficiency Vermont, uh, for instance. Um, we've been pressing on climate issues since before a few people other than Bill McKibben knew what it was and, um, and writing reports about how we could move forward with efficiency and renewable energy in the state. Again, uh, many years ago and, and right through to today where we are, uh, you know, we still have big programs and focus on, on climate because it is the existential kind of crisis of our time. So the energy uh, issues and climate issues have been huge for us. And then you think about issues of uh, resources and, and waste um, and, and the bottle bill. Again, we weren't here for the initial passage of the bottle bill, but it almost, we almost lost in 1973. VPIRG was there to, to keep it alive and to strengthen it and to launch it. And over the years, we have continued to work to improve that program. And, and that goes right through to this past legislative session that ended just a few months ago, where we we're trying to modernize the bill. Came very close. The House and the Senate both passed bills to expand the scope of the law to cover more beverage containers so that more recycling could happen. Um, uh, but we didn't get a chance to reconcile those two before they adjourned for the year. So we'll be back next year uh, on an issue we've been working on for literally 50 years. I often think we learn more from our losses than our wins. Tell me about some big losses and what you've learned from them. Well, yeah, you don't uh, you don't win every time. Um, and I guess, you know, one of those things for us, we could even think on on climate issues. Um, and just this past session, we we were proposing uh, legislation for the clean heat standard to to help folks, particularly low and moderate folks, get off of fossil fuels and, and heating their homes uh, and, and trying to move toward more sustainable heating solutions in the state. And the governor vetoed that legislation. And we, we thought we had an override and uh, uh, going into the chamber, we thought we had all the votes and one person changed his mind and, and we lost by a single vote there. Uh, that was painful. Um, but we one of the things we recognized a few years ago is that with losses like that, um, that this organization might have a role to play in um, supporting candidates who would champion the public interest. And so um, just two years ago, VPIRG for the very first time uh, created an arm of the organization called VPIRG Votes that helps people understand who those champions are and, and finally engages in electoral work, supporting candidates who we think will be champions for climate, the environment, public interest. Um, and, uh, and so that is new work that, that we are a part of because sometimes the decisions about what you can get done in a legislative session are really made in November on election day uh, and in the weeks leading up to election day when we're deciding who will sit in those seats of power. Um, and so, so we're now we're doing both of those things. That was a lesson that it was a long time coming. I think there was there is honor in organizations that decide to stay totally out of uh, the political realm. But these days, there are fewer and fewer elected officials who are, who are kind of in the movable middle and therefore ensuring that we have um, legislators or you know, a governor who are open to, to doing things that are in the public interest, I think is more and more important. So that was a big lesson and one that the organization took to heart and it led to a significant change in how we approach uh, some issues in that way. I think when I think about the PERGs and VPERG, I think about corporate responsibility, corporate accountability, environmental stuff. But lately, you've been showing up as backers of the 
Reproductive Liberty Amendment, uh, now known as Article 22, universal mail-in voting. Is that a change for the focus of the organization? Why, for example, are you getting involved in abortion rights? Yeah, we hadn't um, until uh, until very recently, and uh, our our we've always been involved in healthcare issues since uh, since the earliest days. A recognition that folks deserve. Um, uh, everybody has a right to basic health care. Um, and so one of the earliest issues we worked on was the tooth fairy program to ensure that kids who couldn't afford dental care in the state um, could receive that care through a new state program, the tooth fairy program. And so uh, we view uh, reproductive rights, the right to an abortion as a health care right. It's also a civil right. And, and we have just recognized that you can't be a public interest organization today and not recognize the importance of engaging um, in, in, in certainly these civil rights issues, in uh, reproductive health, in healthcare across a range of different issues, um, in environmental uh, justice, uh, economic justice, and, and racial justice um, as well. So in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd, for instance, in 2020, um, while we have been doing more work uh, in the area of diversity and equity, inclusion and so forth, we recognize that we needed to do more um, on the policy side as well. So we engage uh, more uh, on these issues of racial justice, uh, for instance. And, uh, and those are new issues for this organization. We have to uh, evolve. I think it makes sense as how we define the public interest now really must include these issues. And so that's where this which is made up entirely of a board of you know, Vermonters, uh, and we are independent in the way that we come to these decisions, may differ from other PERGs who may continue to maintain a more uh, a kind of traditional approach to consumer environmental protection and democracy issues. Uh, we have expanded our scope and, um, and we're very comfortable there. Well, finally, uh, what are you proudest of that VPERG's done uh, in its time and in your time? Um, Boy, that's it's hard. You know, I, I couldn't pick a single issue. Although I, I love this work, uh, and I, um, uh, I, I, I value so much uh, the relationships that we have had uh, with so many people. I think though, I'm really proud of the, the idea that we continue to engage uh, the public and, in particular, young people as we approach these issues and what we can do. And while we are not based only on college campuses anymore, we do have a presence at, at UVM and we do have members of our board of trustees who are students. And in fact, uh, today we have a president of the VPIRG board, Anna Suberling, uh, who is herself a student. Um, and uh, she has moved from the University of Vermont to Vermont Law School now. Um, but she uh, is a return to our roots in that respect in terms of real leadership within the organization. But to me, it demonstrates that ongoing commitment to developing uh, leaders um, and to finding ways to make sure that we're engaging effectively with young people who will uh, obviously be um, uh, those who are driving towards solutions uh, for today and, and into the future. And so I think that continued commitment to, to engagement, you know, door-to-door -door conversations, having young people involved and doing everything that we can to give more power to real people, um, it's never been easy, and it's certainly not easy today, but it is incredibly important if we if we want to maintain some hope for democracy, I think. Well, Paul Burns, uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation, and a happy anniversary to VPIRG. Thanks so much, David. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.